Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. through 34, the relevance of the resurrection. And what Paul is going to do here in verses 12 through 19, he's going to give a hypothetical, what if there is no resurrection? And so we'll be looking at that. But he begins there with verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. You kind of sense in Paul's letter, even though it's written on a paper, you can kind of sense the emotions there. He's incredulous. It's like, how can you believe that Christ is risen and yet you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? It just does not make sense. Now, was that a, a, just a, a small minority of the Corinthians or what? It's hard to say. We don't know. Um, you know, we know that Pharisees were coming to faith in Christ. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And maybe there were some Sadducees that came to faith in Christ. And Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So there might be this Sadducee kind of an influence. Whatever the influence was, Paul was surprised. And, and, and it just does not make sense. Because if Christ is risen, think about it. Christ is the head of the church. The church, you and I, the bride of Christ, we're the body of Christ. And so if the head is risen, it doesn't make sense that the body would not be risen. You can't have a head and a body separate from each other. So if the head is resurrected, then the body will be resurrected also. They go hand in hand. And so here now, beginning with verse 14, Paul is going to use the hypothetical argument, what if there is no resurrection? And he's going to use this argument, and hopefully as we go through that and we think about it, we will understand why it is relevant to your and my faith, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, this is like the, the very foundation, the cornerstone of our faith, that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. So beginning in verse 14, he says this, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty, excuse me, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiful, pitiable. Think of the ramifications if Christ is not, re is not risen. Paul says if Christ is not risen, then our preaching, it's empty. It's, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's hollow. There's, no, there's nothing to it. There's no substance. It's just empty words. Paul also says, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is empty. It's also meaningless, empty. It's just a theoretical belief system that really means nothing in the end if Christ isn't risen. If Christ isn't risen, the apostles were liars. Their message was a sham. 
which interestingly, as we talked about last week, if it was a lie, if it was a sham and they were just hucksters or making it up or whatever, it's interesting that all those who witnessed the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ on the, on the, on the, on the, uh, uh, the threat of suffering and, and they did suffer and torture and they did die for their faith, none of them recanted. Would you, if you were a, if you were a liar and you came up with some lie, would you be willing to die for that lie? They were willing to die. They, they gave, and they, many of them, in fact, most of them gave up their lives, without recanting that Jesus had risen from the dead. But if he had not risen, then the apostles were lying. He says, "If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's devoid of purpose." You are in my faith. If Christ isn't risen, it's like we're chasing after the wind or we're trying to catch our own shadow. I've never tried that before. Uh, it doesn't, you, you can't get very far doing that. Uh, you run around in circles a lot. I've seen dogs do that sometimes, trying to chase their tails. That be, you know, that's, that's the picture that Paul is painting here. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, then our faith is futile. And worse yet, and this is the clencher, you're still in your sins. If Christ isn't risen, you're still in your sins. If Christ isn't risen, your faith in Christ accomplished nothing with regard to your soul. Listen, if Christ isn't risen, then he would be just like any other. He would have been just a Jewish man. Maybe he was a good teacher, a great philosopher, or a prophet, or whatever. But if he, if he didn't rise from the dead, he would just be any other man. And his death wouldn't have any significance for you and me. Paul says, if, the dead in, if, if, the, if Christ isn't risen, then the dead in Christ they have perished. You think of all the funerals that you and I go to. Um, you know, it's different going to, of course, going to a funeral of a, a person who's not saved as opposed to someone who's saved. You know, you, w people grieve the same, you know, in both places. I mean, I grieve when my, pet, when my dad passed away. But because he had a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm like, I know he's alive. And I know he's with Jesus. And I know I'm going to see him again. But if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, then all our loved ones that had a relationship with the Lord that passed on, that's like they're gone. Nothing, they're just, and we'll be joining them soon. There's no hope if that's the case. He says, if, if in this life, life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. See, if Christ isn't risen, we have believed and followed a lie, a story that was fabricated. We put our trust in someone who's no different than us. He's just another man. We lived our life. Think of all that you do because you're a Christian. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then everything that we do, every purpose, every, everything that we do, it's, it's just like we've been following a pipe dream and that isn't true. If Christ isn't risen, you and I are the greatest fools that have existed on this planet because we're to be pitied because of our gullibility, because we believe that he rose from the dead if he, if he didn't rise from the dead. Think of all that you sacrificed and all that you pursued in this life. In the end, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then it, it's meaningless. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, why are we even here this morning? Why, why are we gathered together? But I love verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that's kind of a significant term, the first fruits. 
The first fruits was the first like a sheaf of grain out of a, out of a harvest, out of a field. It would be the first that came out of the earth. It would be the soonest ripe. It'd be the first reaped and gathered in, and that first fruits would be representative of the whole harvest. In other words, that first fruit, that first sheaf of grain that you, that you harvested, it would tell you, man, there's more to come. There's more to come. And so Jesus Christ has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now there's a there's the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament in Leviticus. It's a mention in Exodus, but it's also in Leviticus chapter 23. And in that feast, the offerer would take a sheaf, the first sheaf of grain that was ha harvested, and he would offer it to the Lord. And it's interesting when they would do this feast of first fruits, it was on the first day of the week, immediately following the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. It was a bloodless offering. They didn't have to sprinkle blood or anything on that sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrifice had already been offered a couple days earlier on the Passover. You think about that. Jesus Christ was crucified on the Passover, and he rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So he really is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We're getting ready pretty soon to get into the book of Leviticus. We're going to be going through and we're going to be looking at all these feasts. And we're going to be looking at all these sacrifices. And sometimes people go, you know, I don't know if, if going through the book of Leviticus seems kind of dry. And, you know, I don't understand all that. We are going to, I'm going to do my best to point out everything that is a picture of Jesus Christ. Because there is tons of them in those feasts and in that book. So I'm excited about that. That's coming up uh, to a church near you very soon. <laughs> All right. First fruits, interestingly, can also refer to an entrance fee. I've discovered that. That's kind of interesting. So Jesus is the first to be resurrected. And you go, well, wait a minute. What about Lazarus and, and, and the widow of Nain's son? And all these people, when Jesus rose from the dead, all these people came out of the tombs. One of the gospel accounts records that. Uh, the difference is they all died. They were raised to life but they all died again. Uh, Jesus Christ is the first to be raised into a glorified body, a resurrected body, a glorified body, never to die again. And so his resurrection, if you think of they said the feast first, of free, excuse me, not the feast, but first fruits can also refer to an entrance fee. Jesus Christ has paid the entrance free fee for you and I. His resurrection being the first fruits guarantees that there's a harvest coming. I don't know if that makes you excited. It excites me. Verse 21. For since by man came death, and by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You know, Adam is the head. He's the represent, re representative of all mankind. He's your representative too and my representative and as our representative, Adam brought death into the world through the sin that they committed. And as a result of that, of course, death came to all of us. That's something that none of us escape. Death is all of our enemies. Well, Adam is the head. He's our representative, and he gave death. He brought death to mankind, but Jesus Christ is also the head. And he's the representative of all who have submitted themselves to his headship. 
And as your representative, as my representative, those that are under his head, under his headship, will be made alive. Eternal life comes to us through Jesus Christ. And by the way, all mankind will be resurrected. It's not just believers that will be resurrected. I don't know if you know that. But all, all uh, mankind will be resurrected no matter what. But those who are born again, they'll be resurrected to eternal life. The dead, the unbelieving dead, they'll be risen again at the great white throne judgment. But their resurrection will be a resurrection to death in the lake of fire. So now here in verse 23, Paul starts talking about the sequence of the resurrection. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there's a guarantee that his church will be risen as well. If Jesus rose and he's the first fruits and there's a guarantee of a harvest, then that guarantee extends to you and I. But when does it happen? And so Paul addresses that here in verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So let's take a look at that sequence. Christ's resurrection was first. He's the first fruits. And then it says, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. We talked a lot about that at the, or we didn't, but the, the uh, prophecy conference talked a lot about Jesus Christ's coming. It's referring to the rapture, where Jesus returns for his church. That's what Paul is talking about. Christ was risen first, and then afterward, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. His church, you and I, if you have a relationship with Jesus this morning. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, uh, excuse me, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. I believe this is speaking about the end of the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth following the great tribulation. At the end of the millennium, Jesus' enemy, and by the way, he's your enemy and my enemy too, Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. The, what's interesting to me is the false prophet and the Antichrist, they've already been in at the beginning of the millennium. They were, they were at the end of the tribulation. They were cast into the lake of fire. They've been there for a thousand years. Satan's going to join them afterwards. Interesting. Verse 26 the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. After the great white throne judgment, and you can read about that in Revelation 20, verse 14. Interestingly, and I don't, I, I'm just wrapping my, my mind around it, but the Bible says in that verse that death and Hades will also be cast into the lake of fire. Interesting. But think about that. Death is your and my enemy. Death is everybody's enemy. You know, all these, you know, everybody eats, takes vitamins and exercises and they're, you know, they're trying to be fit, right? Because we want to prolong that. We, we want to prolong the inevitable. We don't want that death to come too soon. So we're going to take care of ourselves. You know, that's why we, we you know, we, we protect ourselves. We go like, because death is an enemy. But one day, death itself is going to be destroyed. If nothing else, man, that should excite you. It excites me. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. 
But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. You know, I really appreciate the Apostle Peter. Because Peter, in one of his letters, he's writing, goes, you know, Paul says things that are kind of difficult to understand. And then, you know, it's like, this is one of those verses. Maybe Peter was thinking about this. It's like, okay, you got to kind of really dig in. What is he saying here? Let me read it again. For he has put all things under his feet. He's quoting here. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. God the Father has put all things under the authority of Jesus, the Son of God. It's prophesied in Psalm 110. And what Paul is saying is everything is going to be subject to Jesus Christ under his authority except God the Father himself. But at the end of the millennium, at the end of the millennium, the Son himself will also be subject to God the Father. Now, some people in the cults will say, well, see, that just proves that Jesus is not God. But what they fail to understand is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're equally God, three persons in one. That's what the, the doctrine of the Trinity is. But in the administrative role as the Son, Jesus Christ is still submitted to the Father in that administrative role, even though they are equal. I think such a beautiful picture in here, if you think about it, because we think being subject or being in submission to someone, we look at that as a negative. Man, I got to be subjected to them or I got to be submitted to them. And here Jesus Christ sets the perfect example of being subject to God the Father. I think it's just, you know, here God's equal. Jesus is equal with God, and yet in that role as the Son, he's willingly subjecting himself or being in submission to the Father. What a beautiful picture for marriages. It's a picture I see it in the military, you know, and you got somebody who you've got to uh, submit under who's, you know, I had one uh, chief petty officer when I was in the Coast Guard, and the guy made some really foolhardy decisions. He just made some really bonehead decisions and you know I, I'm like that's not very smart but you know what he was in charge so it's like you know I, I'm going to just submit to it he's the leader you know he'll be responsible for the decisions he made what a beautiful picture of submission so how is the resurrection of Christ relevant for you and for me and I kind of touched on him but I kind of want to look at that here Christ's resurrection first of all it addresses the sin issue. That sin issue is something that we all struggle with. Even as believers, we still struggle with sin. Now, the price has been paid for your and my sin, but I still struggle with sin. You probably do too. I was sharing with somebody yesterday. It's like, you know, I cannot wait to get to heaven when my flesh will be gone and I can worship the Lord in perfect holiness. And, and I will not, you know, uh, there won't be that flesh. I won't be struggling with the things, you know. It's funny, you can come in here on a Sunday morning worshiping the Lord and, you know, you're, you're focused on the Lord, you're, you know, and yet your mind's in another place. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. You know, maybe you're angry with someone or you're, you know, you're looking, oh, that person's here, whatever, you know. That's our flesh. There's coming a day when our flesh 
will be done away with, and we will be in God's presence in, in holiness, in perfect, in perfection, and that's exciting for me. But Christ's resurrection addresses the issue of sin. Paul said it very uh, bluntly, if Christ is not risen, you're still in your sins. But the point is, Jesus Christ was not just a man, not even just a great teacher or a prophet who lived and then died. Romans 1, verses 3 through 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He proved his divinity by rising from the dead. He was not just another man. He was the son of God. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Justification, I, I, I've said this over and over again, but it's just an easy way to think of that word. It's just as if I didn't sin. That's what justification means. His resurrection is proof that his sacrifice for your and my sins was accepted by the Father. <laughs> It proves, because otherwise, if, if his sacrifice was not accepted, in other words, if Jesus was just another man and he sinned and he died, he cruci was crucified and he didn't rise from the dead, he just paid for his own sins, basically. He didn't do anything for you and I. But because he is God and because he did rise from the dead, his sacrifice was accepted. His sacrifice for your and my sin was accepted of the Father, and that's why we are justified in the eyes of the Father. He looks at you and I, and it's just as if we've never sinned. His death and resurrection settled the issue of sin once and for all. Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12, or 11 through 12. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Again, we'll be looking at that in Leviticus chapter 23, which can never take away sins. They kind of just covered over, but they didn't take away the sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. I did not grow up Catholic. I know some of you did. And I always think about the, the Mass, you know, where, where Jesus Christ is, you know, that, that whole, the, the Catholic Mass, he's, he's being crucified again and again and again. Well, that's not what Hebrew says. He paid the price once and for all. Never to be, he never has to die on the cross ever again. Christ's resurrection proves that he conquered death. Romans 6, 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Acts 2, 24. Whom God raised up, having loosened loosed the pains of death because it, was, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus himself said this in John 2, verses 19 to 21. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it, was taken, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Interestingly, that's one of the things that they try to accuse Jesus of, treason. You know, he, here he's talking about destroying the temple. 
but he was talking about his own body. Jesus said, destroy this temple. It's gonna, I'm, I will rise it up in three days. So Christ's resurrection deals, addresses the issue of sin. It proves that he conquered death, and it also gives you and I hope for the future. Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But that's not our situation, is it? 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Think about that. If you has, have given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died on the cross and rose again and paid the price for your sins, you put your trust in him, heaven is reserved for you. That should give you hope this morning. Whatever you're going through, as bad as whatever you're going through may be, man, heaven's waiting for you. This life is, it's not just this life. This life will pass. Titus 2, verses 13 and 14. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I don't know about you. Have you ever been in a situation where you've kind of given hope on that situation, or given up hope, I should say? It's like it seems like something's hopeless. What do you typically do when that happens? Nothing. Because why? There's no hope. If I, if, if I do anything, it's not going to change anything. So you just kind of give up. Because that's what hopelessness does. It paralyzes us. causes us to do nothing. But you and I, we have hope. And hope motivates us to action. If I realize, man, everything that I do in this life, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact for eternity then I'm going to be doing things that are going to affect that. And so I'm going to be zealous for good works, not to earn salvation. That price was paid by Jesus on the cross. You can't earn your salvation. But now I want to live my life for him. That's the other aspect. You know, Jesus is my savior. Is he your savior this morning? I Hopefully he is for everybody. But the next question is, is he your Lord? Is he your supreme authority? That everything you do is submitted to him. That's a little tougher question or tougher to answer for some people. But he, because of his resurrection and his return, because that's the other thing is his resurrection guarantees his return for us. So we were talking about this conference here. He's coming back soon. And so as a result of that, I want to be occupying. I want to be about the Lord's business. I want to meet people in the stores and in my workplace. And where, well, my workplace is here typically, but you know, I want to meet people and, and just I want to share the love of Christ. It doesn't mean I'm going to pound them over the head. Some people do that, you know, cold, cold evangelism, where you just basically, you know, hey, do you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? You know, you just lay it all out and stuff. And sometimes people respond. I, I tried that at Silver Lake once, and this guy was thought I was nuts. I mean, I could tell he was like, get away from me, you know. But you just have relationships with people. I encourage you to do that. Just, just start talking to people. Sometimes we just, you know, we're in a little bubble and we don't want to talk to anybody. With social media, it's that much harder. But, man, you're in the stores, you're in the gas station, wherever you're at, walking down the street. 
engage in conversation with people. And it seems like that's kind of a lost art, but engage in conversation. And, you know, as the Spirit directs, you can start sharing about your faith or you can share about, hey, you know, have you ever heard of this church down here? I want you to check it out, you know, whatever. Christ's resurrection gives us hope for the future. The life that you and I live now matters. If we didn't have hope, then what's the use, right? But everything that you do now matters. Christ's resurrection confirms that the dead in Christ will live again. Again, you go to a funeral, funeral of a loved one, man. It's like, yeah, we grieve. In fact, Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 14. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The dead in Christ will rise again. Your loved ones, my loved ones, we're going to see them again if they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't like to give people false hope. You know, when you go to a funeral of an unsafe person and, you know, oh, you'll see your loved one again. I can't say that. <laughs> I can share the gospel. I've done that before. Just, just share the gospel. Jesus said this in Luke 20, verses 37 to 38. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's talking to them about, uh, you know, about Moses. And he says, but even Moses showed in the burning passage, burning bush, bush passage, excuse me, that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord, uh, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And I think the next verse says at that point they stopped asking him questions because they're like, wow, it just confounded him. God's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Abraham's alive right now. Jacob's alive. Isaac's alive. You're born again in love with Jesus' grandmother that's maybe passed off the scene many years ago. She's alive in heaven. Romans 14, 9, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. He's the sovereign Lord. In fact, that's one of the things the resurrection proved was that he is sovereign. He's sovereign over all who have ever lived and are now dead and, and also over all who are alive today. He is sovereign. In fact, he is Lord. Although, you know, you would talk, go down the street and ask someone, hey, is Jesus Christ Lord? They go, who's he? You know, but he is their Lord in this sense, in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there is coming a time when every knee is going to bow and every knee is going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Now you and I, when we're in his presence, it's going to be Jesus is Lord. Oh, that's awesome. Amen. Others, they're going to do it reluctantly, but they're still going to have to do it. They're going to finally admit Jesus is Lord. Christ's resurrection also assures us of our own resurrection. Next week, I'm going to be talking about our resurrection, by the way. We're going to be looking at what Paul explains and, and just kind of dig in and try to get a better understanding of what resurrection will be for you and I, what it will look like, what it will be. But Romans 8, 11, Paul said this, 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have the life-giving spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling inside of us. And if that spirit rose Jesus from the dead, that spirit's going to rise, raise you and I from the dead as well. So Christ's resurrection assures us of our own resurrection. Now in verse 29, Paul's going to go back to the, the, the absurdity that there is no resurre resurrection of the dead. And so he says this, verse 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And we go, what? What are you talking about, Paul? Are you introducing a new doctrine? What's going on here? Notice that Paul says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? He's not speaking we. He doesn't say, why do we baptize from the dead? Why, why are we doing this? He says, why do they? He's speaking of pagans. And I think his point here is, even pagans believe in the resurrection. And yet some of you Corinthians, you don't. And so he's referring to this pagan practice of uh, being baptized for the dead. It's not something that we do, or we believe. And I, Paul wasn't teaching a baptism for the dead. I think there's some, like maybe the Mormons, so there's some cults that do that, but we don't do that. But he's using that as an example of how absurd the Corinthians, of all people, the Christians in Corinth, why they wouldn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. It's absurd. Even pagans believe in it. Verse 30, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I don't know about you. Can you say that? I don't know if I can say that dying to my sin, dying to myself, dying to what I want to do and just, and just living for the Lord. That's what Paul's referring to. He continues, he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? I don't know anything about these beasts at Ephesus, whether he was talking about literal beasts or whether he was referring to the, the persecutors as beasts, but whatever it is, he said, if, if I've been fighting this, if I've been going to battle, spiritual battle, physical battle, whatever you want to call it, if I've been laying down my life daily and the dead don't rise, why am I doing it? Well, that doesn't make sense. And so he says this, and he's quoting from their, the, the, the Epicurean philosophy of the Greeks in that day, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was part of the Epicurean philosophy. It doesn't matter what you do, so you might as well just party on out, you know? Why do apostles live a sacrificial life now for some future reward if there is no resurrection of the dead? It just doesn't make sense. It's, there's no use. And so sarcastically he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was the model, by the way, 2,000 plus years ago, that was the motto of many people that, that adhered to that uh, Epicurean philosophy. But you know what? We hear that same philosophy today. Hey, let's just party on, man. You've got one life to live. You better party it up. You know, who has the most toys wins. You know, you, that whole mentality, it's around still 2,000 plus years later. It, and it's prevalent in our culture and in our society. 
And you know, it can, it's sometimes we, you know, we believe in the resurrection. How many of you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let me just see your hands, okay? Is there anybody not? Then put your hands down if you don't. Okay, nobody, okay. Wait, I should have done the other way around. Anyways, <laughs> I don't want to put anyone on the spot. But we all believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, that same philosophy, hey, I've got to get all I can right now in this life. I got to I got to strive and get everything and stuff and oh man, I want to enjoy myself and stuff. That creeps into Christians our mentalities too. We can get we get influenced by our culture. And so Paul is saying here verse 33, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Are you hanging out with people that that's all they talk about? Now, we're to be involved in the world. You know, you're talk, we're to be involved with unbelievers as far as being a light and a witness to them. But are they your best buds? Are they the people that you spend all your time hanging out with? And rather than being in fellowship with Christians and other church, you just rather go hang out with your party friends. If that's, your, if that's who you're hanging out, don't be deceived because they're moral. You're not going to lift them up in, morally. They're going to drag you down. It's, it's, it happens every time. You might think, well, you know what? I'm going to go hang out with these guys at the bar. You know, I'm going to witness to them. And, you know, they're going to see Christ in me as I'm drowning that 12 ounce, you know, that beer or whatever. They're going to see Christ in me, how I drink that beer, you know. You're fooling yourself. Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And so while Paul is ending this portion here, he's saying don't get caught up in the mindset of the unbelievers. Awake to righteous. Wake up. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was thinking about this. I, okay, last night after the prophecy conference, you know, I'm all thinking Jesus Christ coming back for soon. And then I, I, I'm like, you know what? I want to watch a movie. <laughs> so, so I watched a stupid movie from 1964 because I was like, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, just want to be entertained. I want to put my mind in neutral and stuff. And, and uh, I was thinking about that as I laid down after I watched it. I said, you know, I just wasted an hour and a half of my time <laughs> watching. It wasn't a bad movie or anything, but it was just, I just wasted an hour and a half watching a silly movie. And I was thinking about 1964. What was, what was the, now I, I was pretty young in 1964, but I was thinking, what was the mindset of the Christians of the church at that time? You know, what was, was it Nixon was president at that point? I'm not sure. No, actually Kennedy had just been executed, or executed, um, assassinated, I should say. <laughs> So it was Johnson, right? Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, or I, whatever. Yeah, I, I should go back to school. I'm, I'm showing my ignorance with history. But in any event, I was thinking, you know, what was the church thinking about at that time in the 60s? You know, they were probably still worried about the Cold War and Russia and all this stuff. And then what about in the 70s and then in the 80s? And, you know, I look at your and my life as Christians today, and I go, how much has changed? The world has changed so much in those few years that I've been alive. And, you know, I know there were people, especially when Hal Lindsey's book came out, The Late Great Planet Earth, it had an impact on a lot of Christians. It impacted a whole generation of believers. Man, Jesus Christ coming back soon. Israel's a nation and all this stuff. And, you know, there was that thought, but it wasn't like it's going to happen. Now, some people say it's going to happen tomorrow. They, they live their life that way, and we always should. But now I look at where we're at now, and I go, man, everything is falling into place. 
I was sharing with some of the guys in the back here. Um, one of the one of the I even forgot who it was that, that showed this picture, but there's this picture um, of uh, Putin, the president of of U uh, Russia, um, Erdogan, the the president of Turkey, and uh, uh, whatever the guy is, the Com whatever Khomeini, whatever the guy is of Iran. And this picture is of these three guys, and they're sitting at a, at a, a kind of a banquet table, and beside each one of them is a picture of their, their national flag. Okay, so you got Russia, you got Turkey, and you got Iran. And where the picture was taken was in Syria. And the, the person that was presenting it said, it's interesting, there's no Syrian president, there's no Syrian flag, but they're in Syria. And the point was, Russia's in Syria, uh, Iran is in Syria, which is ancient Persia, and Turkey's in Syria. And they're like, that are the three players that are in Ezekiel 38, the Battle of Ezekiel 38. And, and, and then they made this mention about the fact that uh, right now, you know, Israel's kind of in a state of upheaval because they don't have a, f their elections were kind of inconclusive at this point. And, and, and the point is, it, it, you know, people can take advantage of that. Hey, they're at a weak point. Now's the time to attack. Now, I'm not saying that the Battle of Ezekiel 38 is going to happen right now, but every player that's prof prophesied, they're there. And so you think about it, man, man, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And when he starts coming, or when, when he comes, he, he says he's coming back soon. And when you look at those verses that talk about his soon return, you know, you think, well, wait, it's been 2,000 years. It's not that soon. But I think what he also means is not just soon as in time-wise, because in Christ's, in Christ's, you know, in God's economy, 2,000 years is like he's been gone for the weekend. It's like he went away on Friday and he's coming back on Monday morning. I mean, because 1,000 years is like a day for God. and you know, So for God, it's soon. For you and I, I go, well, it's been 2,000 years. But that's not only what that soon means. It also means suddenly. And I think that's one of the points, you know, that when, when these things start unfolding, they're going to unfold so suddenly. That's just boom. It's, we're here. We're there. And, and so we really do need to wake up. That's the whole point of prophecy, man. We need to wake up and realize that our redemption is drawing near. And so Paul says that. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. See, those that don't have the knowledge of God, they're going to keep on sinning. They don't have no idea that Christ is returning. But the church, you and I, we know that Christ is returning. We know that the rapture of the church could occur at any time. There's nothing preventing Christ's return for his church. And so how much more should we be awake and sober and looking at the signs and going, wow, you know, look at that, and, and living our lives as if Christ was returning today because he could very well. And so we are to wake up to righteousness and stop sinning. I want to read this to you, 2 Peter verses 8 through 13. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all things, things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will, mer uh, will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then I want to close with this. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31. I believe this was when Paul was in Athens and he was at the uh, Eregopis, <laughs> Mars Hill, whatever, and, and he's speaking to the, to the, uh, to the, to the Athenians there. And he says this, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of all this by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is relevant for you and I as believers. It's relevant for the entire world, but how much more for you and I as Christians? Sins dealt with. Death is dealt with. Our loved ones, we're going to see our loved ones again. We're going to rise from the dead ourselves. Jesus Christ being the first fruits afterward us. What a, what a blessing to, to think about that. And so I pray this morning that you're encouraged and that, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's just it should be exciting us. We should be excited about it. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he's ascended into heaven, guess what? He's coming back. <laughs> and it could be very soon. Why don't you join me in prayer?